I got my stuff together and I moved to Arkansas. In defense of my southern brethren, um, we do things a little differently in the south. I mean, slowly. Well, slowly. Why rush? It's politely. It's so hot. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI profiler, and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today in the studio is... Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor, live in the studio with Jim Clemente. Jim, I think today's the day that I dream about. Oh, really? I get to interview you about one of your cases. Or should I say, interrogate? Or even cross-examine? Well, we'll see about that, <laughs> and we'll have to test your skills. Oh, okay. That's the sort. Everybody, Jim is throwing down the gauntlet. I pick it up. Let's do this. Go for it. So I assume that means, Jim, that you have a case. I mean, you've worked a couple of cases in your career, right? One or two, one or two. One or two. So do you have a case that you think would be interesting and engaging for our listeners to talk well, about today? All of my cases are interesting and engaging <laughs> for our listeners. That's absolutely true. And they're interesting and engaging for me. Although we have recently dropped our interviews with your brother, Tim. And let me just say, Jim, if I may throw down the gauntlet, Tim is an amazing storyteller. He's also a lunatic. A complete, <laughs> no holds bar, <laughs> lunatic. That's true. That's true. So where were you in your career when this case that you're going to talk about today happened? It was pretty early in my career, and I was in the New York office of the FBI. Uh, of course, I had been a prosecutor already and had been an agent on the bank robbery and violent crime squad, and then did some serious long-term undercover operation, and that took me through three years on the uh, commodities exchange. Yeah, I don't think any of us will ever forget James Dean Galenti. <laughs> okay. Well, in case you haven't listened to those episodes, you can go back and listen to them. But it was shortly after that, uh, this case came to me. And so where were you located in, in the country? I know you worked in several different offices. Yeah, I was in the New York office at the time when I got the call. And so were you on the bank robbery squad or violent crime squad? No, still? I was on a white collar squad at the time. White collar. So things like insider trading, financial crimes, yes. fraud. That was the squad that did the major case that I was undercover on for three years. 
Okay, so you're in the New York office. You have finished your undercover, your long-term undercover operation, and this case comes in. Where were you when the case came in? Well, I actually got in my car Friday evening about 6 p.m., and I'm leaving the office. Now, anybody who actually worked in the New York office knows that it takes sometimes about 30 to 40 minutes to get to your car because in New York City, there is no parking. And sometimes we had to park in remote lots that were like 30 or 40 minute walk away from the office. Wait, you're FBI agents and you don't have parking at the office? Believe me, it was a nightmare. That also seems like a security nightmare, but we can talk about that. It is. It is. So a lot of times we just caught leads on trains. We didn't use our FBI vehicles. Wow. But anyway, it was about six o'clock on a Friday afternoon, and I get a call, not from my supervisor, but from the assistant director in charge of the New York division of the FBI. And so how many levels from that assistant director generally were you? Well, it would have been my supervisor, my unit chief, the assistant special agent in charge, several special agents in charge, and the assistant director then. Oh, dear. So let me guess. Oh, there's a deputy assistant director, too. The FBI. I love it. So this was unusual then for you to catch a case from the assistant director. Correct. It's never happened before in my career. So that must have been a little startling. You're also early in your career. So what do you do when the assistant director calls? I go to his office immediately and I think, okay, I must be getting fired. Why (laughs) is this guy calling me in? And it didn't help when I walked into his office and he said, you're Clementi? And I said, yes. And he said, what the fuck did you do? Oh, dear. And that was not exactly the way I wanted my weekend to start. <laughs> I would imagine not. I said, I, I don't I, I don't know. I, 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 what did I do? Because <laughs> you're thinking of all the things you've done. <laughs> yes. and which one does he know about? And he said, why did I just get a call from Director Louis Free telling me to have you report to the Little Rock, Arkansas Division on Monday? Little Rock, Arkansas. And I said, what did I do? <laughs> I was like, I, 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 what did I do? What possibly could I have done? And he didn't know. He couldn't tell me. Little, But Little Rock, Arkansas, that is almost a whole different country for you, Jim. It being is. a native New Yorker. I thought, you know, there's always these rumors in the FBI that if you do something bad in the FBI, that back in the day... Director Hoover would banish you to some tiny little RA in the middle of nowhere, and that's where you would spend the rest of your career. And Little Rock fit that description. Absolutely. So, Jim, let me ask, was this the 90s? It was. Interesting. It was 1994, as I recall. I think I have an inkling about what this case might be. Well, at the time, I didn't because there was no reason to have an inkling about anything. And basically, I was told to get my stuff together and move to Arkansas. Okay. So what did you do? I got my stuff together and I moved to Arkansas. And I showed up on Monday morning at an office that they directed me to. And I was met by somebody named Bob Fisk. Bob Fisk. Robert Fisk. Okay. Who unbeknownst to me, had been appointed fairly recently 
as a special counsel to do an investigation into a case called Whitewater. Oh, goodness. And the targets of the investigation were people surrounding and the person who was occupying the office of the President of the United States, Bill Clinton. Wow. So Little Rock is because the Clintons, obviously, were from Little Rock. Bill Clinton was a governor of Arkansas for two terms, I think it was, at least. Yeah. Attorney General before that. And yeah, so I was asked to come and do an investigation. And the reason why they didn't tell me what it was was because this was all completely confidential. There was absolutely nothing that we were allowed to say to anybody about what was going on or why. And I found out that the reason why I was basically ordered to go to Little Rock was because Bob Fisk had collected a bunch of assistant United States attorneys from the Southern District of New York, where Bob Fisk had been a prosecutor. And I believe he was a former United States attorney there. And he collected a bunch of seasoned prosecutors, former United States attorneys and current United Sta- assistant United States attorneys, and wanted to then form a investigative team of experienced FBI agents. Well, and so it's interesting that you say he was taking a a lot of people from the Southern District of New York. There are assistant United States attorneys and FBI agents in Little Rock, Arkansas, who I'm sure do an excellent job. And can I just tell our listeners, my mother was raised in Arkansas. So I have very fond memories of going to park in Arkansas to visit her family over my entire childhood. I, I can understand why it would have been fish out of water for you. But explain to our listeners why it might have been that Bob Fisk didn't want to take assistant U.S. attorneys and FBI agents from the Little Rock office. Well, it might not be the reason you thought, because what happened was there was a effort on the part of the assistant United States attorneys that were in this special counsel's office now to get information from the governor's office and from the law firm where Hillary Clinton worked and uh, where Bill Clinton did a lot of his legal work. And they finally had gotten a judge to approve a subpoena for those records. And it was on a Friday and it was, let's say, three or four o'clock in the afternoon. And the AUSA involved handed the subpoena to an FBI agent in the Little Rock office and said, we got the subpoena, go deliver it, get these records immediately. And he said, and I quote, I'm not about to go fight Little Rock traffic at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Little Rock traffic. We can do it on Monday. Seriously? These were all assistant United States attorneys from the Southern District of New York. Traffic in New York is slightly more severe than Little Rock, and they just lost it. And they had Bob Fisk immediately go to Louis Free, and they demanded that Louis Free get myself and two other FBI agents that they had worked with. We had worked, for example, on a case. I did a 19-month investigation. We had five AUSAs on the trial, and it was a three-and-a-half-month trial. I was on the stand for two weeks on that trial. I put in thousands of hours, literally thousands of hours in that case, and would not have balked at <laughs> fighting, quote, Little Rock traffic. At, at four the time. o'clock on a Friday. Well, and, you know, it could have been just that guy, but whatever happened, that's what happened. Yes. The other side of that is that they knew that 
the financial machinations that they had to investigate were going to be incredibly complicated and likely spread out over the country. And therefore, they wanted to make sure that they had people who were experienced in very complicated, long-term financial investigations. And they might not have had that experience in the Little Rock office, either the U.S. Attorney's office or in the FBI office. Correct. So for those reasons, I got the call at six o'clock on that same Friday. And on Monday, I was delivering that subpoena. Well, can I also just say in defense of my Southern brethren, um, we do things a little differently in the South. I mean, slowly. Well, slowly, why rush? It's Politely. so it's so hot, Jim. If you <laughs> rush, you sweat. So we just don't rush. And that translates into a lot of areas of our lives. Yeah, maybe. But if you've never spent August in New York City, <laughs> I don't think you know what heat is. Because those buildings and that blacktop, it's all concrete and steel. And it all absorbs heat all day. And it never lessens, even at night. So we do know heat in New York City. But putting that aside. The first case that I worked was a case against Webster Hubble. Webster Hubble was an interesting guy. Why? Well, what made him interesting? Well, he was like six foot seven, 350 pounds. He was a football player from University of Arkansas, and he was an attorney. And he was, at this point, working in the Department of Justice. Well, and if memory serves, Jim, Webb Hubble was also not only larger than life in his sort of physical nature, but also had a personality to match. Yeah, he was a real character, a major force of nature, I would say. And, you know, big, kind of jolly, kind of intimidating physically. And he could also be intimidating intellectually. Well, let's step back for a second, Jim. And talk about, you said this case was super confidential. You weren't allowed to talk about it. At this point, you're there. It's early in this investigation. You've arrived in a foreign land. Does the public know about this investigation? Is there any public information out there yet about it? Or are you guys operating largely in secret? Largely in secret. I think locally they knew because people were getting subpoenaed and people were being interviewed. I don't think it had really hit the national news. It was kind of rumored that something might be going on. But I dove in. Actually, the first day I got there, I remember the office manager saying to me, do you hunt much? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, we're constantly hunting in the subways in New York. It's a lot of fun. Oh, Jim, that's not it. <laughs> and yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> and people kept telling me, whether it's at the gas station or restaurants or in the streets, you're not from around here. And I was like, don't you think I know that? I mean, come on. Anyway, so it was a little different. But I started this investigation into Web Hubble and basically... There was an allegation that Webb Hubble at his law firm, it was the Rose Law Firm, had a billing anomaly in the amount of $25,000 that they had found. And because this investigation was going on and because the law firm had received subpoenas about financial improprieties, they turned over that information to this special counsel. And so I was assigned that case and I immediately started looking deeper. So I subpoenaed as many records as I could. I got Hubble's credit card records. I got his law firm cases. And I learned everything about how they got paid and how they did billing and all that stuff. And I spent months. And I worked with uh, an assistant United States attorney named Julio Sullivan. And there are very few people who I have met in my career 
who I unequivocally say are geniuses. And Julie is definitely one of them. Amazingly brilliant woman. Not only is she a Georgetown Law School professor, but she is one of the most kind and loving and caring and intelligent people I've ever met in my entire life. Wow, Jim, she sounds like an amazing person. She is an amazing person. I have to also say, when I walked into her office, so because I had to move very quickly, I didn't bring my car or anything with me, and I had a motorcycle to get around, all right? (laughs) And so I come into the office, and I have a black leather jacket on and a motorcycle helmet in my hand, and I walk into her office because I'm told by fist to go because I'm going to be working with her. And she's in the middle of a rant at the computer guy because her computer crashed. (laughs) And she's yelling and screaming. And I walk in and she just yells and screams and walks right past me. And I hear her out in the hall and I hear her saying, who the fuck is that in my office? (laughs) It's interesting only because later on it would be posited by certain people at FBI headquarters that the reason why I was brought on the case was because Julie and I were lovers, and and she wanted me to come out, and that's why they pulled me out of New York. I I was like, what? I had seen her once or twice in passing at the U.S. Attorney's Office. I don't know if I knew her name, but she certainly didn't know my name. (laughs) So just to make it clear for our lady listeners, Jim, you and Julie were not an item. We were not an item, (laughs) no. But that just became an issue because it seemed like somebody at headquarters was pissed off that I... Like, I really wanted to go to Little Rock, Arkansas. I don't know. That I, you know, that it was some sort of, you know, boondoggle that I got to go to Little Rock, Arkansas. I got stuck there. Not that the people there were bad, but I really was a fish out of water in Arkansas. There are a lot of differences between New York City and Little Rock. So I drilled down into all these records and I started amassing a huge case. Well, and Jim, can I just ask you, because obviously as a former prosecutor and lawyer myself, I understand that it is very controversial, and it's even in the news now about getting records from law firms. So how hard was that for you to actually get as many records as you needed? You said you went through their billing procedures. You went to Webb Hubble's cases. This is actually controversial. So that must have been hard. Yeah. Well, I we set up a Chinese wall, and I think we've talked about it before, sort of a person to vet the information before it came to me. And I sat down with a young lawyer in the law firm. I told him what we needed. And I don't want to know the underlying case. I don't need any of that information. I I need to know what he was hired to do, what services he provided, and what he billed for. That's what I need to know. And in the process of doing that, that number, 25,000, started ticking up quite a bit Uh to the point where... I got it up to $795,000. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a billing error. And on the weekend before we were going to indict Webb Hubble, Bob Fisk was unceremoniously replaced by Ken Starr. Interesting. And they and made who, it, they took it the, from a, a special counsel to an independent counsel, and they put Ken Starr in it.
I have become a complete convert to memory foam mattresses. I love them. And Casper products are cleverly designed to mimic human curves with their memory foam mattresses. They provide supportive comfort for all kinds of bodies. You know, you spend one third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. Francie, Casper mattresses are designed for humans by humans, and that's the difference. Casper actually cares about giving you a great night's sleep. I love my Casper mattress because it's so comfortable. I always wake up in the morning feeling refreshed. And you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. And get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com forward slash best case and using promo code best case at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. That's $50 our listeners can get towards select mattresses just by visiting casper.com slash best case. And don't forget to use promo code best case at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. And I have to say that was a, a very unnecessary and in fact, wasteful. Um, and that's as far as I'll go in terms of commenting on it. But event, because almost every single case that Ken Starr would eventually bring forward to trial or to court was already in the process with Bob Fisk. In other words, this case was investigated and prepared for prosecution under Bob Fisk. And we didn't file the case because he was just sent out. And then it became a delay for weeks while Ken Starr kind of caught up to what was going on. Well, what's interesting that our listeners may not know is there is a difference between a special counsel and an independent counsel. Again, it's in the news today, but special counsels are overseen inside the Department of Justice. They're managed, they're supervised. It's inside the Department of Justice. It's Any trials are going to be brought inside the Department of Justice. Independent counsel law, which no longer exists and has expired and been let by both parties expire, the independent counsel was wholly independent right. and basically unanswerable to anyone. Right, but it also caused us to have to create our own Department of Justice. Right. So it cost millions more dollars. It cost many more years in time, and it just slowed down the entire process. I believe we would have gotten the same results had that not happened because Bob Fisk was incredibly, incredibly intelligent, dedicated, honest, and experienced in criminal investigations. Ken Starr may have been a lot of things, but he was not experienced in criminal investigations. And he basically ran it like a civil lawsuit. And that was a mistake because what he would do is he would send letters to the other side requesting information and asking them to explain things that we found in an investigation. And that's not how you do it in a criminal investigation. No, it's giving away the game before absolutely, you're Absolutely. Absolutely. So that was that. At this point, I had to then sit down with Ken Starr and explain to him the case against WebHubble because it was the first case of a number of cases that were being prepared for prosecution. But before that, let me just back up a little bit. I presented all my findings to Julio Sullivan, the assistant United States attorney that was going to be prosecuting this case. And Julie has, as I said, she's brilliant, but she likes to see everything sort of laid out. So she asked me to put everything on a timeline. And I said, Julie, I don't think you understand how complicated this is. And she said, well, show me. Just I got to see it. Just show me. She said, just put a timeline on that wall. And so what I did was I said, okay, Julie, you go home today and tomorrow I'll have the timeline on the wall. So she left and I stayed there almost all night. And I put the timeline 
not across one wall or two walls or three walls, but across all four walls. And that was maybe a tenth of the information that I had gathered on this case against Hubble. Because I had to not only look at what he did for these clients and what he billed them for, but then where that money went when it came in and where the actual expenses were incurred and then how much of the pie he got. In other words, when he bought in money to the firm, he only got a percentage of it. They have this thing called you eat what you kill. All right. But it's a percentage of the pie and it's shared. And then associates that work for him and Mm -hmm. law clerks that work for him get something. It all has to be documented because I'm showing the money trail. So she came in the next morning. (laughs) Julie. Yeah. And she sat down and her mouth was agape and she was like, okay, I get it. So she let me do what I had asked her to do, which is put it in a binder. And so you could flip through a timeline that way. And it actually filled several binders, but you could chronologically go through the entire thing and see where every penny came from and went. Yes. As prosecutors, we like a timeline. Jeff. There you go. So Bob Fisk has been replaced by Ken Starr and Ken Starr wanted me to brief him on the case. And he came in and I went through this entire thing and I didn't give him every detail of every single penny, but I showed him, I showed him an example, right? And then at the end I said, and then Webb Hubble took the damn money and spent it at Victoria's Secrets for his wife. (laughs) And Ken Starr sat back and looked at me with the most serious deadpan face And he said, must we use vulgarities? I was like, what the fuck did I say? (laughs) He didn't like the fact that I used the word damn. And I was like, oh, dear. (laughs) Oh, dear. This is not going to be a good relationship. (laughs) No, he and I became very close over the years because I did end up on that investigation for a long time. But, yeah, he was not used to, let's say, the coarseness down and dirty <laughs> of New York City criminal investigators. Well, I don't remember Starr's background well. I remember that he was a judge somewhere, but I don't know if he was ever a prosecutor. And I think if you were never a prosecutor, a cop or an agent or maybe a military guy, you're just not necessarily used to the way we talk. My understanding is that he came from a white shoe law firm. He was very proper, very religious. And, you know, that was him. And I, I'm not taking anything away from him, but He learned that I was a little different than that. And so, although he did like the thorough and extensive investigation that I did. So So did he approve Hubble for prosecution? He did. And we presented it to the grand jury and Webb Hubble was indicted and Webb Hubble was convicted. So explain to those of us who've never been white collar investigators and prosecutors, because that's my worst nightmare. What exactly was he charged with? What was he doing? What was the scheme? He was charged with wire fraud, mail fraud, fraudulent billing practices, defrauding the law firm and defrauding the customers. So what he had done was he was living a very high lifestyle and he was charging it to his clients. So what he would do is he'd get his credit card bill from the vacation that he took in Banff and all the expenditures that he took there and so on and so forth and gifts and entertainment and all that. So he would then come back from that vacation. He would have to pay his American Express bill by the end of the month. And so he would take out some of his client files and he would say, okay, $863 for that ticket 
okay, I'm going to say that I flew to Indiana to talk to a client on that day. Okay, I paid $6,000 for my family to, you know, fly here or do this trip or whatever. You say, okay, then I spent uh, 36 hours doing this at this place for this client. So he laid out every expense in the amount of the expense that's on his credit card, and he charged it off to a particular client that had nothing to do with that expenditure. And he would also bill the associates at the firm and their hours against it. And I would lo- had to look at their hours and what they actually put in on the case and then see how he edited them. So it sounds like, on the one hand, it sounds like it could have been a bit of a sophisticated scheme. On the other hand, it sounds kind of stupid. Well, he just never thought anybody would look. And nobody did look until there was one client who was not happy with him and called up the law firm and said, you know, he charged me $25,000 more than what I think he I owed him. And so they sent that to me and I found many, many more. So in the end, it ended up being over $700,000? 795000 Wow. Yeah. So, so you go to the grand jury. We go to the grand jury. We get an indictment. And Webb Hubble's lawyers come in. And there's all sorts of back and forth. And eventually, Webb Hubble decides that he will plead guilty and cooperate with the investigation. Wow. However, when Webb Hubble did cooperate with the investigation, one thing that happened was that anytime he was talking to us and supposedly being truthful, he would spin his wedding ring on his finger. Mm-hmm. So this is a habit you noticed as yes. a profiler yes. or as a soon-to-be profiler. And anytime he was saying stuff that he didn't want to talk about, he would start spinning that ring on his finger. And of course, what did somebody who worked for Ken Starr do? Because Ken Starr replaced all the attorneys. What about Julie? He replaced all the attorneys. Oh, no. Well, I think, in fairness, I think most of them left out of loyalty to Bob Fisk, as opposed to not wanting to continue on the investigation. They thought that what happened to Fisk was wrong, and it should not have been done, and that it was a mistake, and so they left the investigation. Wow. So Webb spinning his wedding ring. Yes, and the attorney that replaced Julie decided to tell Webb. What? That I had noticed that every time that he's lying. And when he says this, he's doing this. When he says that, and he tells him that. Why would he tell him? The next time Webb Hubble shows up with his attorney for a debriefing, no wedding. No wedding. That's the kind of crap I had to deal with at this point. And so he supposedly cooperated, but didn't really cooperate. And in the end, did some time, but never really told us what he really knew. And I think the analogy that we can draw is what's going on right now with the special counsel and a number of associates of the target of that special counsel that's ongoing right now. A number of those associates have been indicted and the way the FBI and special counsels do their job is to find as much information out about the targets of their investigation. And during the course of that, they typically may find that there's illegal activity going on around them. 
and they will investigate those cases and prosecute those cases in order to get those people to hopefully divulge truthful information about the target of their investigation. And well, I that's think, a classic technique. I mean, it's a classic technique of any case, any kind of case. We did it in child exploitation cases when someone would travel to engage in sexual activity with a child. We would ask them about other people they knew and were communicating with who were providing them with child pornography or abusing their own children. And of course, it's classic drug uh, organization behavior. I mean, this is there's nothing wrong with finding criminal activity and persuading the criminal uh, for whatever activity they've done to offer them a potential benefit in exchange for truthful information. Truthful. Truthful information information is the key. And you have to corroborate it. You have to corroborate that person because they're obviously in a position to have a motive to lie. So you, the investigator and the AUSA, whoever's prosecuting, has to make sure that any jury will believe that cooperating defendants information. Right. So that's what we did. So in the end, Webb Hubble was not really a cooperator. And other uh, investigators and prosecutors in that independent counsel went after other people around the Clintons. And in the end, um, Jim Guy Tucker was indicted and James McDougal was indicted. And Jim Guy Tucker, wasn't he the governor of Arkansas? He's the governor after Bill Clinton. Yes. And Both of those people, well, at first, Jim Guy Tucker did not want to cooperate, but then he was prosecuted a second time, and and he did say he would cooperate. And then I believe a couple weeks later, Jim McDougal passed away of a heart attack. He had had major heart problems during the entire time, so that was not unusual. I know there's a lot of conspiracy theories about that, but the fact is that Ken Starr said he would not indict a sitting president of the United States without two live witnesses to corroborate the documentary evidence that they had. And so Bill Clinton was never actually indicted on those cases. And I believe that he was an unindicted co-conspirator on one case um, that went to trial and the other conspirators were convicted. But the case never actually resulted in charges against the main target, which is Bill Clinton. So it sounds to me, though, that uh, not to get off on politics, and we only have a couple more minutes, but it sounds to me like Ken Starr made a bit of a political decision when he said that he wouldn't indict a sitting president without two corroborating live witnesses. There's nothing in the law that requires that. I know that. And in fact, I don't know if it was a political decision or if it was an indicator of what he was. He was a judge. And he wanted to do a balanced investigation. And he did not want to take the chance of interrupting our entire governmental process unless there was a rock solid case. So I think in his carefulness, he made that decision. And I don't know what's really interesting. And this is one of the reasons why at this point in my life, I stopped reading the news and listening to the news because I would do an investigation and then I would watch the news about what we were doing and it would be absolutely incorrect. And I'm smart enough to know that it's not just happening in the cases that I investigate. Of course not. But what happened was Ken Starr would get this public image of being a extreme Republican diehard, going to get Clintons at any cost person when in fact that was absolutely the opposite. If anything, Ken was overly careful and much more judicious than what a prosecutor should be because he was, run, as I said before, running this more like a civil inquiry 
than a criminal investigation. And because of that, I believe that it didn't go as far as it could have gone. And in the end, we all know what happened. Not really much. Not much for all that money and all that time by you and a lot of other dedicated people. Right. So I did do other cases and we'll talk about them some other time. But in the end, right about the time that I transferred from the Little Rock office to the Washington, D.C. office of the Independent Council was when somebody named Linda Tripp walked in and said, Monica Lewinsky just told me that I can have the deed to her apartment in the Watergate complex if I sign this affidavit saying that I'm not aware of Bill Clinton sexually harassing anybody. Wow. Boom. Boom goes everything. And luckily, I was transferring out. (laughs) Wow. Well, Jim, I have to ask, this was an exciting tale from start to finish based on some things that are you know, really out in our public consciousness. And I really appreciate you giving us a perspective most of us definitely have never heard before. So I have to ask, is this specifically your time with the independent counsel and special counsel, the Webb Hubble investigation, is this a worst case or a best case for you? Francie, it's a hard question to answer because there are some aspects of it. I mean, I did a thorough investigation. I unearthed a large amount of fraud that hurt a lot of people. Um, had a very big hand in locking up a criminal that was masquerading as a Justice Department official. And so I think that part of it was good. But in the end, I think there was a lot of politicizing of something that shouldn't have been politicized. And much of the effort of all the dedicated investigators involved in these cases went kind of for nothing. It was kind of fruitless. And that's unfortunate. Wow. Well, great perspective, Jim. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Francie. And for now, wrapping up this episode of Best Case, Worst Case, thank you for listening. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, LA. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba and hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness Delight can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know? Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community. When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more. That's d2l.org. the number two, L, dot org.